Welcome to A Penny for Your Thoughts, a podcast brought to you by Sean Bloomgren and Andrew Penny from Central Iowa. On our show, we discuss all things agronomy, high-yield management, and give you real-time updates on what we're seeing and hearing in the field. We will also gain insight from industry professionals as we bring you relevant and timely information on current agronomic practices. Thank you for joining us. We're uh, back with part two uh, with Dr. Mark Westgate, Emeritus Professor from Iowa State University, and uh, uh, looking forward to the, the discussion around corn physiology and uh, some of the key learnings that uh, Mark, Dr. Westgate's had over, over, over his career. Um, let, let's start with uh, some of your research uh, in, in corn, Dr. Westgate. What have you looked at over the years and what, what's your focus or what was your focus? Well, I've looked at just about everything on the plant relative to how it grows and how the environment affects it. Um, one of the, the neat things that, that I, I recall was comparing the sensitivity of all these different parts of the plant, the leaves and the roots and the flowers uh, and the stems, and they're not all the same, okay? They don't all respond to a, let's call it a stress, the same way. And we tend to use one lump, you know, one size fits all. But we, we know for a fact that the roots can withstand lower water potentials, more stress than the, the aerial parts of the plant. And that's a great thing. In fact, the plant has mechanisms to maintain root growth under drying soil conditions at the expense of shoot growth. We also know that the reproductive structures are by far more sensitive than the leaves and the roots to water stress. Um, they, their expansion really is suffers. So we have to really pay more attention to what's going on during reproductive development to make sure that whatever the, the, um, the vegetative parts of the plant can supply, that those veg- reproductive structures can take advantage of it. Yeah. So, you know, you, you always have heard about this, this um, the most sensitive period in development of the plant, da-da-da. Well, if you're growing seeds, producing seeds, then you're always worried about flowering and, and early stages of, of, of uh, seed development. That stands to reason. But those stages have, have um, caught my attention early on, and we've spent a lot of time trying to figure out why they're so sensitive and um, what we can do about it. Yeah. One of the reasons I'm working for power pollen these days is because they found out something you can do about it. Uh, yeah. But we maybe we'll talk about that later. Yeah, no, that's that's uh, so yeah. It's been about reproductive development, and it's been a uh, quite a journey because a lot of folks have dug into it, both from the molecular point of view and from an agronomic point of view, and we've learned a great deal. But there's still a lot of vulnerability. The plants have not forgotten their their uh, their history. They even the corn plant, which seems so resilient and and so vigorous, is very conservative relative to how many seeds it'll set under difficult conditions. Yeah. Well, that, that's, that's a good leeway. You know, the, the reason we wanted to bring you on here just because of, of some of these environmental conditions we've been facing the last few years, you know, we, we've had high temperatures, we've had drought seems pretty consistent the last few mm-hmm. years. And so, you know, uh, kind of separating out these episodes into corn and soybeans, you know, talking about a C3 versus a C4 plant. Um, can, can you give some, some quick advantages, you know, the pros and cons of, of a corn plant being, you know, it, it's a rarity. What is it? 4% of the species, plant species in the world, I think roughly is that our RC4? Yeah, that's a good estimate. And so, their distribution is not uniform around the world. Yeah. It, it's a very um, yeah, small percentage. Varies. 
So, so what are some pros yeah, and cons of? It's a small percentage. Let's talk about the pros first. This this so-called C4 plant or C4 photosynthesis, it's all about adding an extra step or two in capturing carbon out of the atmosphere. The plants, C4 plants, um, have a somewhat unique um, leaf structure around the vascular tissues. They have cells that can capture carbon uh, out of the atmosphere and put it into a, a C4 plant. It's called oxalacetate. And the enzyme involved is called PEP carboxylase. Well, this enzyme is really pretty spectacular because it has a very high affinity for CO2, which means it can, it can function at a high rate, even at very low CO2 concentrations. And that's, that's very different, very different than the C3 part of photosynthesis, the main enzyme involved in capturing CO2 in that system, of course, is, is Rubisco. And it's not that crazy about CO2. <laughs> it doesn't have as high an affinity for it as this PEP carboxylase does. So in effect, the addition of this extra step, the C4 step, provides a way to bring carbon in um, around Rubisco in a higher concentration. So the plant effectively takes CO2 out of the air, puts it in a C4 form, and then the plants in various ways, there's several ways it does it, will take that capture or release that CO2 in and around uh, Rubisco. So it, it, it effectively increases the concentration of CO2 around Rubisco, keeps it high all the time, which is a huge advantage when there's variation in CO2 concentrations. It's not such a big deal at high CO2 concentrations because C3, C3 plants can get more in with, through their open stomata. The other advantage, of course, is that since the CO2 concentration can be lower and still be an effective um, carboxylation event, the, the plant, the, the enzyme can still capture the CO2 and, and fix it. Um, the stomata don't have to be so open. Okay, yeah. The diffusion across stomata isn't, isn't that big a barrier anymore. So the C4 plants can operate with fewer stomata, maybe stomata on the lower part of the leaves, or stomata that are clo not closed, but less open. So that while the resistance for diffusion across that barrier is greater, it doesn't matter because that first enzyme, PEP carboxylase, can take CO2 and fix it into a C4 acid and off they go. So that means practical terms, C4 plants are not that sensitive to CO2 concentration in the atmosphere. Well, they, they do respond to it if they're not nearly as sensitive. Um, and that gives them opportunity to be more conserving with water. Huge, huge issues. The other benefit is, of course, is that since they can concentrate CO2 around Rubisco, the enzyme, the C3 enzyme, they don't fix as much oxygen. By Rubisco doesn't fix as much oxygen. So they don't have as much of a photorespiratory problem to deal with as the typical C3 plant does. They still have to deal with respiration as a way of losing CO2, but photorespiration is less of an issue. And they can recapture some of that CO2 if they do happen to have photorespiration going on. So they're much more efficient with CO2. And this shows up particularly when the temperatures go up beyond 80 degrees or so. They're much more efficient uh, with atmospheric levels of CO2 
the light intensities, they're all better. They're doing much, much better because they can concentrate CO2 and minimize the impact of, of photorespiration. Oh. That's huge. Where they f- are less beneficial, where there's a, and that, I would call it a problem, but a cost uh, for this benefit of having CO2 concentrating mechanism is that at low temperatures, below 70 degrees, down in the 50s and the 40s, down in that range, they really suffer because mm-hmm. their, their biochemistry is not as facile, not as effective at those lower temperatures. So C3 plants do better than C4 plants in terms of net carbon fixation at lower temperature. They also need more light to do the job because making the substrate for that C4 enzyme that that carboxylase costs them more energy, costs them more ATP. So, hey, at lower light, light down in, in the 400, 300 micromole range, which, which is about, what, a fourth to a fifth of sunlight, um, they don't do as well. They struggle. So that's why you see them growing pretty well under conditions where it's typically warmer and typically a little drier and typically a lot more sun. So that's right? why so we don't grow corn in Oregon. <laughs> uh, that's right. It'll grow there. It'll grow there, but not all that well. Soybeans are so probably the C3 grow plants better. are better under those conditions. Yeah. Okay. So there's there's a cost, but there's there's also you have to weigh the costs and the benefits. Um, in general, C4 plants fix a lot more carbon per unit area than C3 plants, but they don't achieve the highest photosynthesis rates. Um, per unit leaf area, C3 plants do, can do much, much better than a C4 plant, interestingly enough. Hmm. So it depends where they're growing and what kind of conditions they're growing in, which one has an advantage. So if we think about row crop corn production, how, how does the corn plant respond to populations? Oh, that's kind of a loaded question. Yeah. <laughs> well, so let me let me amend it. Let me amend it with if you think about you know the the vast majority of the corn belt. I guess you know where where maybe we're looking at a population of you know upper twenty thousands to you know now we're starting to see in some high fertility and high production areas maybe pushing at 40 and, and, and even the low 40,000s. Oh, yeah. So, mm-hmm. so talk about the, the physiological relationship to those, those populations All right, and how growers should think about that, I guess, from a management standpoint. Well, I'm going to start with a, a bit of a, uh, I'm going to call it an anecdote maybe. Okay. Uh, corn plants don't like each other. Okay. <laughs> okay. You start packing them in together Bunch of bullies. and they find ways to I'm less productive. Okay. All right. It's like seed, now, like seeds. Lots of reasons men. for that. <laughs> <laughs> so you might ask, why are seed companies keep pushing those those numbers up? There you go. All right, we'll get back to that. the The allocation of resources in this in the corn plant is a little bit different uh, in terms of the intensity of it and what parts of the plant allocate resources to other parts of the plant uh, than the soybean plant. Okay, I'm just going to back up with soybeans for a second. You know, at each node, there's a given structure. You have the, the node, the inner node, and then there's a, there's a leaf there. Okay, that leaf supplies that node. That's its job. All right. Yes, it might send carbon elsewhere, but the vast majority goes right to that node. 
corn plant's not like that. The corn plant has a lot of nodes, as you know. Each one has a leaf in the same kind of basic structure. Um, the, the upper part of the plant, let's say there's 18 leaves. Uh, maybe leaves 15, 16, 17 are, are, are sending, leave, sending carbon up to the tassel. And of course, the nodes, the inner nodes in between. The middle part of the plant, is prim its primary job is to feed that, that growing uh, rachis, that, that ear. Maybe there's one or two of them. The bottom part of the plant feeds the roots and the, and the lower stem. All right. It's rare that you see carbon going from the bottom part of the plant up to feed the tassel. All right. Not usually the case. All right. That has an impact on how those structures develop. Mm -hmm. Now, you, you know that breeders have worked pretty hard to raise those or change the angle of the upper leaves, right? Mm -hmm. The new variety, new hybrids, uh, they've got vertical leaves. Well, mm -hmm. why is that? Because the, then the light penetrates further into the canopy and supports those middle leaves and lower leaves, if it can get there, uh, to support the bottom part of the plant and the, the, that, those, uh, those branches. So the key for making sure you get good yield on that plant is to make sure that those middle leaves are functioning very, very well. And people have done all kinds of things in terms of measuring nutrient content and all that kind of stuff and growth rates and all that business. But the bottom line is if those middle leaves aren't getting enough assimilate, enough light, they're not going to support that, that rachis as well as they could. The other part of that story is the bottom of the canopy supports the lower part of the, the plant, okay? So where are the roots getting their, their assimilate from? The bottom part of the plant. In today's world of high density plants, high density plantings, it's not too hard to find gradients of light in the canopy that make it, oh, maybe 60% or so down to the, of, of the incident light, down to those middle leaves, but basically nothing getting down to the lower leaves. What does that do? It makes those lower leaves, turns them into a supply, from a supply into a cannibal, right? Mm -hmm. And of course, the roots have no source of their own. So they are looking for a similar from somewhere and they'll draw it out of those leaves. They'll draw it out of the lower stem as best they can. Now, as we mentioned with the, um, the, the soybean plant, the rules for or the guidance, maybe is a better way of saying it, for how the plant decides how many of those flowers on the rachis to set seeds, that message comes from the roots, all right? It's not just an assimilate message, although those plant, those young uh, zygotes are paying real close attention to assimilate supply. They're also paying attention to the signals, in particular cytokinin signals coming from the roots to say, should I grow quickly or should I grow slowly? All right, same concept as we talked about in soybeans. Slow growth is you might as well put an equal sign, equals abortion. Yeah. So how do we make sure that we, as we increase plant population density, that those plants continue to favor um, a reproductive stalk branch in the middle of the plant? And that it keeps growing at a rate that will support a lot of seeds forming. And then after they're formed, that they continue to fill. At flowering, it's a combination of making sure that the middle of the canopy is open and you've got light going down there. That's clear. 
but it's also important to make sure that the roots continue to function and grow and are nurtured by the plant. Yeah. Well, that's a, that's a right? wonderful, that's yeah, a wonderful there's, there's explanation on this. because, you know, I, I think as we have more issues in, in these yield limited environments, whether we're too hot or too dry, you know, we can look at the, you know, if you start thinking about real world implications, you know, we often look at nitrogen deficiency, potash deficiency, and we see those, that symptomology on those leaves, that's no longer photosynthetic material on that mm-hmm. lower canopy, right? Yeah. So if we're thinking about those, right. those, those lower leaves feeding a healthy root system, thinking about that connection, healthy roots require healthy leaves, healthy leaves require healthy roots. If we start having severe nitrogen or potash deficiencies or those lower leaves start senescing early, what's the root health going to do that feeds that entire plant for nutrients and water, right? Well, yeah, and it, it makes my mind go to we've been having this conversation about tar spot and and when do we spray, how much canopy penetration do we need with our fungicide? Are we trying to protect the whole plant or just ear leaf and above? And I mean, there's implications to all of that when we think about total photosynthetic material. Yeah. I think crown rot too, right? I mean, Dr. Westgate, thinking about that, we have, we have crown rot issues in areas, right? What if, what if there's a connection? I mean, we, we know so little about it, but what if there's a connection between hybrid leaf angle or uh, potash nitrogen deficiency because those leaves are senescing early, so those roots aren't getting enough assimilate to to stay happy and yeah. healthy and fend off crown rot. Yeah, uh, if that crown rot is, if the organism or organisms involved are saprophytic, in other words, they they just take advantage of of what assimilate is there. They do very well, in my understanding, when the sugar concentration isn't very high. Yep. Yep. If that stem is loaded with sugar, then they are suppressed. So if the way we're growing the plants deplete the lower stem of sugars, then what are you doing? You're making them more vulnerable to anything that's saprophytic that can come in and and start chewing. So these things are not isolated. I mean, they they really are connected. Uh, So if there, there is, if there, forgive me, if there is a management scheme that ensures that the lower canopy continues to um, have a simulate available to it, then the prospects for continued root growth, healthy roots, and healthy stems, and less um, fungal invasion, if it's just a fungus, uh, those all go together. So one of the things I've noticed that the high-yield guys are doing is bringing back this, this idea of a corridor, solar corridor. Maybe you've heard of that thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, it wasn't very well accepted early on, because you're just taking away, you know, yield. You're taking away land that I'm, I need to grow my corn in. So it's, if you're not familiar with it, it is basically alternating corn rows and soybean rows or corn rows and wheat or whatever you're rotating with. Yep. So that there's a lot of potential for light reaching the lower corn canopy. And this is something that is being, I guess, called revived, if you will, because it's not a new idea under conditions where really high yields are expected. So it's not just putting in rows and different, you know, alternating rows. It's, it's, it's incorporating that concept, that management concept in other management scenarios, like maintaining nutrient status and water levels and all that other stuff that the high yield growers are doing. Um, so it's something to consider, but there's going to be a, a, a price to pay for putting corn plants 
growing corn plants under conditions where they're not supporting the lower stem. It's it's going to be a challenge all the time. Yeah. All right. We don't need a derecho to knock all those plants down. <laughs> Talk a little bit about the advantage of having the largest corn plant possible by the summer solstice. Oh, you guys with the summer solstice. <laughs> um, first of all, corn is not that sensitive, even though it has trop- tropical origins and tropical corn is very photosperiod sensitive. Uh, our temperate corn is far less photoperiod sensitive. Okay, let's start with that. Um, The summer solstice, if we could put a date on it, like, what is that? That's the end of June? June 21st. Roughly 22, 23, somewhere in there? Yeah. Um, the, The basic structures, reproductive structures are already initiated and growing, right? So, the corn plant is deciding how much energy should I put into all those branches, all those reproductive branches that I've started, which could be 11, 12, maybe something like that. And how much should I put into the tassel? Because that competition, and it is really a competition dominated by the tassel has a huge impact on how rapidly that the top one or two of those branches, those rachises, that those little ears that we like to call them, how fast they're going to grow, how many initials they're going to put down. The tassel suppresses that. And once those, those um, young ears begin developing at the upper part of the upper nodes, they suppress all the ones that were initiated below them. Okay. Even though that they're not the first to be initiated. Uh-huh. So there's this, this interplay between who's in charge, who's dominating, and how agronomists and breeders have tried to change that, that, that interplay over the years. The reason that they're able to grow plants at higher plant density is that they've decreased the apical dominance of the tassel, and you've seen smaller tassels these days, right, mm-hmm. in the hybrids, as well as the embryos, and more rapid growth of those upper one or two branches, upper two uh, ears. So that has changed the partitioning. That has changed the priority for a similar distribution, even though the tassel still rules the show. Um, that has made it possible to increase population density. Now, it's also li- limited the reproductive capacity of each plant. Because we know that if we grow those same plants at lower plant density or at the edge of the field, they'll put out two, maybe even three years uh-huh. that'll put on kernels. Okay. But at lower plant density, you don't get the yield per unit acre. So the companies have decided in favor of each ear produce each plant produces an ear that is of reasonable size. And then summing over the acreage, you get more yield. Everybody gets a trophy, right? In the area. <laughs> right? So it is It is moving the priority. It's a consequence of moving the priorities in the corn plant to favor um, lateral branch development, the ear development, over the tassel, and likely the roots as well. So there's been a quite a bit of discussion that, you know, if there are adventitious roots growing, then we don't have enough priority for ear development. Okay, because those are they help the plants stand up. Maybe they're good for for water and nutrient accumulation, but that's later in the in the life of the plant. 
Um, so that's an interesting debate at this point. Um, and you guys might want to wrestle with that with your growers. And say, <laughs> do they think these, great, these adventitious roots are a benefit? Or if they are kind of a leftover from the past uh, and we don't need them anymore because we're growing in high population density and all we want is a nice big year. Well, you also reminded me of a, of a question I, I knew I would I would have to ask you at some point when we start talking corn. What, what's your what's your thoughts on uh, on the term flex versus fixed ear? <laughs> oh, jeez! <laughs> you know my answer to that question. Well, I know I, I'm very good at communicating. Um, agronomically, that. yes, you can see you can see agronomically that some um, some germplasm has a capacity to put on. More, more flowers under different conditions, in other words, a longer rachis, and to, under the right conditions, fill out, get, get seed set on those longer ears. Okay. Uh, others tend to be a little more, I'm going to call them stubby. Now, if we take this to the it's logical extreme, <laughs> our good friends down at uh, Simit, okay, over the years, selected for drought tolerance. And you would think that uh, their selection process for improved yield in those drought-tolerant lines, and they improve drought tolerance a lot by selection, recurrent selection. They would have bigger ears, and they would have a lot more flowers, et cetera, et cetera. They don't. They have smaller ears, but more of those flowers set seed. Yep. Okay? So this idea of flex ear, um, I'm not convinced that that's a, well, I'll call it a, a physiologically relevant thing to worry about. Okay. Yes, there's variation on how long a given hybrid or in germ, I'm going to call it germplasm, uh, would uh, set flowers. Okay. Some set a lot in a hurry, some set more, more rows than others. There's clearly you can find variation on that theme. My prescription for an increased and more stable yield would be to go with rachises that have more branches on them, which each branch divides into two rows. So um, a seven-branched seven rachis would give you 14 rows, an eight-branch gives you 16, et cetera, et cetera. Um, the plant has a much, much better chance of setting seed when there's more synchronous pollination than it would if the pollination process is strung out of, on a long rachis. Can a long rachis with lots of, of um, flowers per, per row put out of seeds on? Of course it can under the right conditions. But at high population densities, that's highly unlikely because so, it's of the sequential process of setting seeds in this crop. So can I translate that to farmer speak? If you and I go scouting, you are going to prefer kernels around prioritized over kernels long when we measure an ear. Yes, I would. You 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 see you I see would. a higher likelihood of yield out of an 18 or 20 around ear versus a uh, 14 or 16 because of the ability to pollinate those flowers. Yes. Excellent. I'm the and one that like has to I'm the one that has to speak I'm the one that has to speak the translatory language to make sure that the farmers understand what we're saying. Um I so I'm going to say something and I hope I don't get scolded for saying something that that maybe is a is a silly question but you know we when we grow grass we're always told 
stress the grass early, don't water it, you know, really, really force that grass to grow well. And as we think about the last few growing seasons, you know, we've had a, a, a lot of drought, a lot of heat. Um, is, is there any truth to that, uh, root exploration, drought stress? Um, is there, is there any benefit to that or is, is that a, a, a net negative on our corn plants? Um, I would say it's a net benefit under okay. whatever conditions you might be growing your plants. Early on in the development of the corn plant, it's predominantly a root growing structure, root growing. I mean, the, the uh, root to shoot ratio is like nine to one. Wow. It drops pretty fast after that, okay, as we get more leaves going. And the tendency has been to, well, let's get, let's make sure we have vigorous shoot growth. All right. That's fine if you have conditions where you don't need all the roots. And people might be surprised to hear that in general, the corn plant doesn't use all its roots, mm-hmm. okay? To transport water and nutrients. It might use a small fraction of them under most of the conditions. But when the soil starts more challenging, then recruitment of roots, functional roots, becomes a much more important issue. Yep. And I mentioned earlier, you've got to have some roots getting down to the water table, all right? So in that case, if I'm going to just throw some fun numbers out, if 10% of the root gets down to the water table, you might not need the rest of that root system mm. other than to stand the plant up, right? Because it's supplying the bulk of the water to the plant. So what do you do early on? You, you look for uh, hybrids that have an aggressive root system. And in my view, um, a root system that is not only has potential for lateral growth, but for really aggressive root, deep root growth. Uh, those who have looked at this in some detail have have uh, shown that roots that are a little more skinny, <laughs> they're not as thick and robust, you know, um, they have less of a, a similar demand for respiration, maintenance and growth, but they can grow down in between the root particles and, and reach water supply. So, Ask your seed supplier, which of these, these lines have an aggressive, deep rooting system that doesn't use a lot of respiratory, has not, doesn't have high respiratory demand? Okay, see what kind of answer you get. Well, well Because I, I, it's not a whole lot different than making sure that whatever semblance available is being used efficiently. A big fat root system that isn't needed because there's irrigation going on um, it's kind of a waste of energy, all right? Um, but a root system that can explore soil that is sometimes dry and can can send signals to the shoot to say, be more conservative, be more aggressive in terms of seed formation, that can be very effective, very, very, very useful. Yeah. Well, as we continue to, uh, you know, dive into the conversation of, of heat and drought, um, let's, let's dig into... Um, seed and, and, uh, you know, pollination, fertilization and, and dry matter accumulation in corn kernels. So, so thinking about early on, you know, when, once we have uh, pollination, fertilization and seed set, what, what, what dictates kernel size in corn? Mm-hmm. Well, there are a couple of things. First of all, again, it's, it's similar to the, to, um, the soybean plant in that early in development, there's a lot of cell differentiation and division. 
and there's a great deal of expansion going on. In terms of the overall size of the kernel, its, its volume, the expansion during the first three weeks is critical. That expansion is driven by, as you might expect, um, signals from the root saying, hey, you're doing well. Things are good. Divide rapidly, expand rapidly. All right. So the larger the volume achieved early on, the larger that mass of the kernel can be. That volume expansion will cease. All right. It will reach a maximum about midway through filling. And there's nothing you can do to make it bigger. Hmm. All right. You could take seed, you can take seeds away. You can do all kinds of stuff. You cannot make it bigger, but it's easy to make it smaller, much easier to make it smaller. The only question that remains then is the plant in a condition to fill out that volume fully. Most cases, it does not. We grow, for some reason, we grow dent corn, right? Why do we call it dent corn? got a little dent on top because we because we don't fill it all the way out (laughs) you don't fill it all the way out it's exactly right so the value of having a large volume to fill only accrues if you have the the plant has the capacity to fill up that volume fully and you can you i can tell you very plainly that the high yield growers work to fill up that volume completely their kernel mass is much larger on average than the typical kernel mass coming off of a grower's field, average grower's field. It could be 50% bigger. Wow. Okay. That's because they, they have a long filling. They maintain that filling period. All right. So uh, initial size is determined by, uh, or the potential size is determined by environmental conditions and genetics, of course, for how well that, that little... Uh, Caryopsis can expand, okay? Is it spe- expanding? And it's it's a cell expansion issue, all right? And a, and a water volume, uh, a water transport issue, as long as there's water available and assimilates are, are accumulating inside that that um, uncellularized endosperm, that thing's going to expand. Things expand quickly. That will stop eventually. And then got to find a way to fill it. So, so um, the rate of growth the rate of dry matter accumulation, um, again, is determined in part by that expansion and the early formation of, of cells. The duration of filling, absolutely determined by the desiccation late in, in seed filling and the capacity for that plant to fill those seeds out. In my view, in my experience, it's typically late seed, late filling desiccation that stops the, the growth, not assimilate supply under normal conditions. Yes, it can stop be stopped by fail, lack of assimilate supply, but boy, do you have to hammer the plants to have that happen. Well, okay. so, so what dictates, you know, we, we, we kind of talked about that rapid influx of, of water in, into that mm-hmm. developing kernel that dictates, we'll call it the bucket size, you know, a term I, le- I learned from you, that, that sure. dictates the bucket size. What, dic- what dictates kernel weight and, and how much of that bucket we fill? Well, um, I guess in simplest terms, 
How fast can the plant fill it? Okay, what's the rate of filling? How fast can metabolism uh, utilize the, the assimilant that's being supplied in terms of, of um, sucrose, which is broken down to glucose and, and fructose before it enters? Okay, how fast can it assimilate that? And um, how much of a respiratory demand is there on that metabolism? All those things absolutely come into play. The, the enzymes involved in starch synthesis, of course, which is the, the main product in the, the corn kernel, uh, in endosperm, uh, is very sensitive. The enzymes are very sensitive to higher temperatures. You get above, say, 85 degrees, and those enzymes aren't very happy. All right, so there's a problem there in terms of maintaining the rate of filling at high temperatures because of the synthesis component of starch components. And then you weigh that against the, um, the continued respiration of those new formed tissues. Um, it gets difficult to maintain the, the same rate of growth at higher temperature. And for, there's an optimum, of course, and it's, it's going to be in that 25 to 30 degree range. But you get above that, and again, uh, respiration does take its toll, as well as the, the uh, sensitivity of those uh, synthetic enzymes. Yeah. Okay. Um, and just in general, always, you can always tack on this issue that the plants are paying attention to the accumulation of thermal units. That's how they drive transition from one stage to another and the, the maturation of each structure. So as thermal units accumulate, they're going to be rushed through developmental stages. One of the, the problems with, with high temperatures during, during seed formation is they don't have the time to, to make seeds. <laughs> they get through it too quickly, right? They can't finish the job. If it's slowed down, then there's a chance that um, they can fill out, they can set those later formed flowers, later, later maturing flowers. But if you rush them through it, there's less assimilate, there's less time, the potential goes down. And the same thing is true during seed filling. If, you get, if they rush through that period, um, they, they just can't reach their potential. Yeah. They the, just can't do it. You might you might have answered this, but I, I just want to clarify it to make sure. So what what really naturally dictates the duration of grain fill? All right. We know that there is an expansion early on, right? Water's rushing in in response to um, osmotic forces. That reaches a, a maximum. But the overall mass of the, the kernel continues to increase because that water is replaced by assimilates, dep dep deposition of starch, and in the embryo, and some protein, and in the embryo, of course, oil and, and protein as well. Now, the embryo is also sensitive to that expansion question. In fact, if I could just divert for a second, the expansion growth of the embryo inside corn kernel is and completely analogous to the expansion of the embryo in a soybean seed okay as long as it continue to expand it will continue to deposit dry matter pretty amazing anyway so but most of what we see is in the endosperm so that endosperm is really desiccating as it matures and it's really desiccating in terms of the percentage water per unit mass throughout its development Hard to believe, even though it's pulling a lot of water in early on. Overall, 
it's drying out. So that by the time we get through, say, the middle of filling, it is really starting to get desiccated. Mm-hmm. And there are places in the endosperm that are get quite that are quite dry, and their metabolism is stopped. So it's the the wetter parts, if you will, the higher moisture parts of that that structure that continue to lay down starch. Well, that that process of replacing water with assimilate and laying down those end products basically desiccates the the uh, the kernel. So it'll stop doing metabolism when it gets to a certain point where it can no longer function, can no longer do metabolism. All right. So there's a natural process of termination associated with the natural process of desiccation. And that occurs a long way ahead of, of um, black layer formation. It's, mm-hmm. it's in that neighborhood of 35 to 40% moisture. Okay. And no one's harvesting kernels at that stage unless you're in a, a, um, uh, a, um, a system where you're, you're looking for four, four or five cycles a year. Yeah, you know, if you're doing transgenic work, but they dry down the kernel after that. But in natural conditions, the, the kernel is drying. So it's in essence a race between desiccation, so metabolism can't function, and how much dry matter can accumulate. It will stop eventually. Is there and any- then it will continue to dry afterwards and separate from the uh, the maternal tissue from the, the plant. Is there anything a grower can do to, I, obviously we, we would like that process to last as long as possible. Is there a way we can reasonably manipulate that process in our favor? You bet. Um, and I think most likely from the assimilate side. Uh, what you do not want, of course, is for that, that kernel to stop growing because there isn't sufficient assimilate to finish the job. And of course, that kernel, those kernels are getting their similar primarily from the middle of the plant, right? as, we, as we talked about earlier. So keeping those leaves healthy and green, photosynthetically active, is essential, absolutely essential. Now, we do have the so-called stay green character, right? You've heard about that? Yep. Um, but that is, is a partial benefit, right? The way you keep the green the leaves green longer is to keep the roots healthier longer. If you've ever seen a video from the high yield harvesting program that these that uh, that Hula and um, yeah Randy Dowdy do, they harvest corn off of green plants. Yep, really green plants. So those plants clearly have not run out of capacity for making a simulate and their their um uh what do I want to say that the, the longevity of those green tissues come from cytokinin signals again from the roots the cytokinin if you increase cytokinin content leaves stay green longer if you decrease cytokinin cytokinin content in the vasculature the leaves senesce sooner that's been shown in lots of different ways. That's, so, that's fascinating to think about. I know I, I keep coming back to these poor roots, keeping them healthy. Um, but there's, it's really a key. We tend to ignore those, those guys, but they are controlling an awful lot of development. Certainly it's duration and the intensity of transitioning from 
vegetative reproductive growth and maturation. So, so being an, being an annual, you know, both corn and soybean plants, do you, th- do you think there's, you know, start starting to think about this connection between the roots, the stock and, and the leaves and, and that just the vascular mm-hmm. tissue, the highway, is, is there, you know, again, going back to their, they're both annuals. Do you think there's more of a connection with, with root health, sending signals to the leaves to keep them green versus natural senescence? Or is, do you think it's a, a lot of root relation sending signals for the plant that, Hey, it's, you know, things aren't good. It's time to senesce. Well, that, that's a continuum, you know, it's, mm-hmm. it's not like a or B. Um, that's why we see variation in, in the stay green character in my view and why um, when you see the lower part of the plant looking pretty stressed, then uh, for, for nutrients, then you see a little more sensitivity late in the season. I mean, those things go hand in hand. Um, don't forget we, we grow these crops as annuals. We don't have to. I know that, that might sound strange. <laughs> but um, as a perennial crop, there's, there's more um, opportunity for continued seed production uh, across years. And maybe there's an opportunity for at least some of our crops to become uh, perennials where we harvest uh, you know, the seeds but, but keep the, the plant intact. We, we look at um, cotton that way. It's a perennial, really, but we grow it as an annual. Um, there, are, there are perennial maize. They're grown in South America. I don't know if, if there are perennial soybeans, but I know you can grow them a very, very long time with the right photo period. Yeah. So anyway, um, it's not something that for immediately available to growers today, but I wouldn't take it off the list as something to, to consider. Hmm. We kind of bookend our soybean discussion with this question. And, and I think it's one our growers um, and listeners would, would really uh, appreciate us asking. So you mentioned Hula and Dowdy and, and, and these guys that are really pushing the limits. Um, what are those guys doing? Uh, what are those guys doing? And, and, and maybe, Part B of that question is when you think about practical row crop commodity production, what what would you mm-hmm. encourage growers to consider um, when we start to think about applying the rules of physiology that you've you've shared with us? Well, first and foremost, they pay attention uh, all season long. Yep. All right. They are looking to get information from the crop on day one. When are they coming out of the ground? How uniform is it? What can I do to make sure that the emergence is uniform? Right? That's fundamental. They also pay very close attention to regular sampling of leaf tissues. Tissues that that, uh, might give them a clue as to whether or not there's at least sufficient, if not luxuriant levels of nutrients in those leaves. Again, because the, de- the depletion of those nutrients is what leads to uh, senescent uh, tissues, senescence and less photosynthetic capacity. Uh, and maybe even a premature removal of whatever storage materials they might be in those leaves that might not go to where it needs to go, put it that way. All right. Um, so they absolutely pay attention to that. They are clearly... Uh, aware that corn, for example, is a temp- is a um, 
geez, Mark, a tropical plant. <laughs> okay. And it remembers its tropical origins. Soybeans is not, it's more of a temperate crop, but it was initiate or some of the earliest lines come out of Southeast Asia, which can be a pretty warm place and dry place. It can be pretty wet too, <laughs> depending where you're at. So they understand the fact that early growth is what these tropical plants live on. Okay. Bursting out of the ground, taking full advantage of all the thermal units that are available. And they, they, they grow plants in, under those conditions, okay? They're not growing them here in northern Iowa, <laughs> where right. it's pretty dang cold in the spring. And um, corn just can't take advantage of that. In fact, it's, a, it's a very difficult for the corn plant, um, given it's the way it fixes carbon and, and um, the way it partitions assimilates, to take advantage of those cool conditions early on. So... Putting plants in too early could is could be very detrimental. Okay, it's putting the plants at a disadvantage. That's especially true for corn. If you can wait a few days until it looks like the weather's going to be warmer and the plants can shoot out of the ground and, and grow very rigorously for the first five, seven leaves, then that plant will know we're in a good season. All right. That's why many modelers early on, believe it or not, would say, if you can tell me how the plant's doing it at the V4, V5 stage, I'll tell you what yield you're going to get. And of course, oh, we wow. all thought they were nuts. Hmm. Um, but what that reflects, as I look back upon it, is the fact that early season accumulation of thermal units is critical for the corn crop. Early season development of reproductive nodes is critical for the soybean crop. Got to pay attention to those two things. And I know that, that the... Uh, the high yield guys do that. They're also very aware of, of maintaining uh, healthy plants late in the season. <laughs> they, uh, if they're out there harvesting corn off of green plants, you know they have paid a lot of attention to making sure the roots are healthy, uh, whether they're giving them, whether they're irrigated and giving them new, you know, uh, a dose of light dose of nutrients all the time, making sure the roots are growing. Um, things along those lines. I don't know all their secrets, believe me, you know, um, <laughs> but I do get the chance to to kind of see what they're doing and, and once in a while. Uh, but I know they're paying attention very early on in development. And, and if growers can do that, they'll be a step ahead. Yeah. Hey, that's really good. And I'm, I'm anxious to hear Andrew's uh, takeaways as we, as we, you know, kind of go through this process. But before we get to, uh, me cashing in my penny. It's probably my favorite question that we ask our guests and, and um, we probably should have prepped you for this one, but as you think about your career, um, maybe speak to a couple things that you've done that, that either have meant a ton to you personally, or that you think have had a real significant impact on the egg industry, kind of your time to say, you know, here's, here's the things that I have just really loved working on or, or, uh, you know, some oh. highlights from your career? Well, focusing attention, research attention on the, the water relations of reproductive structures of whatever crop, I think has, has paid a lot of dividends to the industry. A much better understanding of, of what, how important partitioning is, how important the, um, 
the activity of young growing structures is in terms of maintaining their their outcome or determining their outcome, things along those lines. I think that's that's been pretty good. And we still have a lot to learn. Oh my gosh. The seed companies have tried to do all kinds of molecular manipulations and and find that there's still a lot of layers of complexity you have to work through. No one single gene seems to solve um, these layers that the plants have laid on top of their conservative nature for setting just a few good seeds. So we still have plenty to do. Um, one thing that that I would like very much to see in the future, if I could answer the question this way, is to think differently about these plants. We grow them, they look, they, we have an idiotype, okay? We, mm-hmm. we think they need to look a certain way. We need to grow them a certain way. And I'm hoping that we can think more broadly about that. Yes, we have plants that have been selected for machine planting and machine harvesting. That's clear, okay? And as long as we are relying on those big machines, then there's going to be limitations on what you can do in terms of the structure of the plants. And the breeders will always bow to that one, regardless of what else they try to do. But there may be other things we can look for, different leaf arrangements, different types of, of um, I would call it uh, extinction coefficients, like, so the more light comes through, things along those, just all kinds of different things that benefit more of the plant than just what's going around on around the, the, the reproductive structures. So there's plenty, absolutely plenty to do. And from a breeding and morphological perspective and from an agronomic perspective, not just from a molecular, let's change the genes perspective, because that, that kind of comes after we figure out what new things we need to go after, right? Well, well, I know I know it's it's been a, a tremendous honor to interview on this podcast. You know, I, I give a lot of talks and presentations, and I af- I often reference you and and maybe some of your quotes, what you've taught me. Um, I, I often say, I sure hope you don't tell them. Well, Doctor Westgate said <laughs> <laughs> it is not something you're allowed to say. <laughs> well, I, I often say I was either your your uh, least favorite student of all time or your most favorite because I know I was in your office quite a bit bugging you, and we had a lot of good conversations. So <laughs> uh, that, that's the best, absolutely the best. <laughs> I uh, I may I may swing by your office there south of Ames and. Uh, bribe you for some Andrew Penny stories at some point. But, um, one of the things we really enjoy, one of the things we really enjoy at the end of our show, um, Andrew Penny is my co-host. We call our show a penny for your thoughts. And, and Andrew, as we think about what we've learned about corn physiology today and management decisions, um, I'd like to cash in my penny. Give me your succinct takeaways. Yeah, I, I got some key takeaways. Um, I, I think we're going to combine maybe some corn and soy, you okay. know, stuff that just stood out. Um, I think one of the things that stood out to me, and I, I know something I'm probably going to research a little bit more, is just this discussion. You know, we often talk about soybean uh, maturity and, and just the, the importance of, of that plant being a photoperiod sensitive plant. Um, learning, learning a little with, with Dr. Westgate, and again, I'm going to look more into this, thermal units matter a lot more than what we've previously thought in soybeans or what d- gets discussed out there. And so I, th- I think that's something we can use to our advantage as we start talking maturities and, and yield potential and, and maybe focusing more on nodes and just healthy plants and, and focusing less on that photoperiod sensitivity that, that yeah. we all have in the past. Um, I think the second thing that stood out, you know, uh, Dr. Westgate just mentioned, you know, that there's a Corn is a tropical plant, plant right? Historic, you know, it's native tropical, right? Origin. And so I, I think focusing on that 
warmer temperatures from that V1 to V5 can really dictate the end goal, which is which is yield in a corn plant, right? And so I think as we continue to push our planting dates earlier, we know there's risk early on in, in, in planting April 10th, right? We know there's, there's often cold conditions. So say that plant emerges and it's V1, V2, and then we have a cold spell. What's the potential impact, whether it's root rot or it's overall plant health, vegetative accumulation? You know, the, the, I think I think that's worth discussing. And, and, and you know, I, I think my third point kind of ties in with that, um, that point. You like, Dr. Wesky said he likes planting soybeans early, right? There's the potential for more nodes to develop. And so I think I think with that, there's less risk agronomically of planting soybeans earlier than corn, right? And so I think that's just something that as we continue to have these conversations with growers, whether it's maturity shifts, um, what can we do for yield, maximizing yields? I think one of the one of the first things we can do is just start thinking about the risk versus rewards of planting corn and soybeans earlier. Um, we know the risk associated with corn. We know there's less risk with soybeans. It's only upside. And so th- those are those are the, the three things that stood out uh, to me. And, and I think I would say the final one, we'll, we'll have four here. Um, you know, I, I think it's it sticks out to me. We, we often compare yields to corn and soybeans. You know, you mentioned that the, the protein and oil content of a, of a soybean is two and a half to, to three times more expensive uh, in, in soybeans than in corn. And so I, I think that really gives us, you know, we often joke about soybeans being that that crop we never want to grow in, in, yeah. in Iowa. It's a weed. Yeah. yeah. But but I, I think, I mean, we, we, we're going to need protein and oil, you right. know, right? We, we need it. And so I think if we can maximize, you know, and, and, and do everything we can to maximize yields in soybeans, knowing that we need that protein and oil content for numerous different products that, that we use, um, I, th- I think we can start get past this whole soybeans just a weed and, and maximizing how we, you know, all the agronomic practices and things that we do to, to maximize yield. So those are the things that stood out to me. Yeah, I, I think it's really good. And I, I'm going to chime in. I've never been allowed to do this. I'm just going to take the liberty of doing it. I think after listening, um, you know, to both of you today, one of the things I think that goes through my mind is we've talked about. Uh, just a lot of different ways that our management impacts different portions of the crop. And so I think, Dr. Westgate, when you talk about, you know, the partitioning of the crop and how the root system affects different parts of the plant, even as late in the season as, as you know, the partitioning from tassel to ear and those sorts of things, it makes it makes me really think about the importance of thinking through our management practices and how it impacts each portion of that plant throughout the growing season. And And when you're talking about the high yield, guys and the guys really pushing the limits on what these crops are capable of, you know, to me that puts um, a real burden on growers to say, you know, maybe what I'm doing is applying the same amount of total fertility or, or the same amount of fungicide, but I'm doing it in a way that's focused on that whole plant health rather than one specific problem or, or one specific moment in time that we're looking at. So um, Dr. Westgate, it's been a real honor as well. And one of the things that I'm always um, just really appreciative of, and and it comes through so much listening to you talk today is just your lifelong passion to understand these things um, and the diligent, the diligence and discipline it takes to, to be the wealth of information you are. So um, from uh, on behalf of, of Andrew and I uh, sincerely thank you on behalf of our listeners and just for the impact you've had um, on on agronomics as a whole. Um, we really appreciate you taking the time to spend with us today. Andrew, as we kind of uh, say goodbye to Dr. Westgate, give our listeners a, a quick teaser about our next episode. Yep. We're going to discuss a, a 
pretty big issue here. You know, the, the whole diaporthy complex and stem canker and some of these issues uh, within that diaporthy complex have, have been a pretty big uh, problem the last two years in soybean production. So we're going to interview the professor who's kind of the, the, the wealth of knowledge when it comes to that uh, from North Dakota State University. Awesome. Dr. Westgate, thank you so much for your time today. Uh, we, we greatly appreciate you investing uh, probably more time than you intended with us. So thank you very much. My pleasure. Thank you for the invitation. Thanks again. Thank you for joining us on another episode of A Penny for Your Thoughts. We love your feedback. Please email us at a penny for your thoughts at gmail.com. That's a penny, the number four, your thoughts at gmail.com. Or reach out to Andrew and I on our social media. Thank you for tuning in.